You are tuned into a new episode of Writer's Block on CJSW. CJSW's Writer's Block broadcasts out of the University of Calgary campus radio station at CJSW 90.9 FM, located on Treaty 7 territory. Writer's Block airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. If you ever miss our show live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com slash writers dash block. This episode of Writer's Block is brought to you by a student-driven collective. We'll be featuring inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and creative segments. Our October episode of Writer's Block would like to highlight Maddie Robinson's interview with Kyle Flemmer of the Blasted Tree Press. An art collective and publishing company, Kyle is the editor-in-chief of The Blasted Tree, and they are celebrating their publishing of its first two books, namely Kyle Flemmer's very own barcode poetry. Followed by you, Calgary's Crystal Smith interviewing Miriam Gorali in one of her anticipated craft talks, followed by a special segment on Calgary's beloved Ferris Fair, and rounding off this episode with Vincent Young's review of A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings by Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. Only on Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Hi, this is Maddie Robinson interviewing Kyle Flemmer about The Blasted Tree, an art collective and publishing company. We are chatting today with Kyle Flemmer as he is the editor-in-chief of The Blasted Tree, and their company is publishing its first two print books, Without Form by Ben Robinson and Kyle's own work of barcode poetry. Uh, We are so happy you reached out to us to chat about your work. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about your company and how it started? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, I I was doing my undergrad in Montreal. I was attending the creative writing program at Concordia. This was, I don't know, in 2014 when I started the publishing company. I noticed that a lot of the writers there were trying to get their work published and um, struggling to to get any recognition from like the larger literary magazines and I figured you know why wait for other people to come and validate our stuff and and I I can just open a website and and start printing things on my home computer and away we went um, so yeah I kind of just started with some of my own my own publications my own uh, short stories and poetry and my friends from class and uh that's kind of thing, how things went for the first couple of years. That's really interesting. So did you actually start this as an undergraduate then? Yes. Yeah, I was about halfway through my undergrad. Um, yeah, like I said, I was doing creative writing and uh, the the wisdom is you should be sending your stuff out, right? The, the teachers are always um, foregrounding publication as as the way to get involved in the community. And I figured, you know, why not build a community of our own? That's a really cool concept. Um, I know being an undergraduate surrounded by people that have a lot more publishing experience, so to speak, can be a little bit intimidating. So it's really cool that you went out on your own to do that. Um, did you find there was a lot of pushback against or was there a lot of support from students? Uh, it was, I mean, neither really. It's, it was pretty lonely <laughs> at the beginning. I felt like I really had to recruit people and publishing my own stuff um, was a way to go out on a limb and and show that I was like risking my own stuff. Um, some people are really close-minded about self-publication because they do think like an external editor or a third-party journal or whatever can validate your work and make it uh, appear more serious. Um, but yeah, I, I started with my own stuff to sort of expose a vulnerability and invite people into a conversation with me. And so it did really just start with a few friends, people I could uh, pretty easily manipulate into joining. (laughs) I love it. Uh, You always pull your friends in first, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. They're the (laughs) guinea pigs. 
Totally. So I noticed when I was doing some research about this company that you guys chose the title The Blasted Tree to kind of remind people of the image of a lightning struck tree or something that was like a little bit different. Um, it personally made me think of Jane Eyre just because when I read that book, there's, you know, the famous symbol of the lightning struck tree. Uh, were you thinking about that or were you thinking about something a little bit different? No, that's uh, that's pretty much bang on. The The lightning struck tree is a very like romantic era notion. Um, and I just from like a practical standpoint, a, a tree that gets struck with lightning is the tallest or it's standing apart from the rest. And so it's it's a symbol of um sort of self-sacrifice in a way, but also um, it, it, it's an exceptional tree in, in other in a other sense. So I wanted to I wanted to have an image that people could um, feel proud of being a part of, like they're you know there's something special. and uh, and of course, there's the electricity at the heart of it. like that's the that's what you know, cursed Captain Ahab, or that's what birthed Frankenstein's monster. And that's sort of the alchemical imagery that I wanted to bring forward. Yeah, totally. You do think of Captain Ahab and kind of his leg and everything too, with something like lightning hitting, right? (laughs) It is very literary. Um, That actually brings me to my next question. I guess it kind of relates to your work, barcode poetry, because a lightning struck tree does have that kind of electric digital feeling. Mm. Um, It's reminiscent of that, what with the lightning. But it also is very tactile as, you know, trees are what make paper, which what what are make books. So I guess this kind of also shows connection between the digital and the the old school book, hey? Yes, yeah. (laughs) Um, I have a publishing friend, um, Derek Beaulieu, who he has a philosophy of like give everything away or circulation is really the only thing that that matters it's it's not about money or being famous it's about having the work circulating through the community and so um the idea of giving it away for free i'm like oh i know how to do that just you put it on a website a website is free to access for everybody and uh that's that's how that's how I think I, we can get new visitors and new authors and that sort of stuff. But we pay for things by uh, by selling the physical products. Um, I mean, I don't I don't make a lot of money off of it or anything like that. But we make physical products. We sell them in order to cover the cost of the website and the chapbooks and whatnot. Of course, and I know too. There's a lot of discussion about how, for a lot of short story writers or even poetry writers, in some ways the like digital rebirth of literature has actually been very important for them because instead of just publishing in one journal that gets lost to time, your work is always online. So people can go back and reread, especially if they miss an issue or a copy. That's kind of something I've noticed a lot with um, any short story writers or poetry writers is that they kind of prefer having the online journal or kind of archive, I guess, in a way, because it helps them be able to like go back and track versus like looking for an old copy of a sci-fi journal somewhere from like 1934. (laughs) It's always online, right? Yeah, I agree. Um, Honestly, I think they serve different functions. Having Having the online version or a digital version means that it can be reproduced um, infinitely, but it's also nice to be able to hold something. Uh, and I think that's that's part of the motivation of um, making chapbooks, making um, leaflets, other print materials, and ultimately moving into books. For sure. Speaking of that, so this company was started in around 2014, correct? Yes. Um, I was wondering, so you started out printing leaflets and chapbooks, mm-hmm. um, and then you made the jump to full-length books. Why did you make that jump? Well, um, there's a few different reasons there. The 
the chat book format is usually about 24 pages at a at an upper limit and some projects need more they need more room um but they it costs more to produce that room uh and then in order to to cover that cost you have to have a bit of a different production model so in some ways in order to do justice to some of the projects that i was committed to um i sort of forced my hand but on on the other side um it's a form of uh, joining a larger publishing community. Like I've published of my own work um, a half dozen or more chat books. And, uh, you know, people are like, oh, great. But they kind of glaze over when, you know, you realize that they don't exactly know what a chat book is or they don't care about it as much. But, you know, you say, hey, my first book is coming out. And, you know, everybody, your mom, (laughs) you know. The dog knows, the neighbor knows. Yeah. and so that's that's part of the part of it too. You know, after doing this for seven years, it's it's time t- for people to see that uh, we're that we're serious about it. Yeah, I've definitely seen the glazed over look when you mentioned the word chapbook. It's amazing. It's like a hypnotizing word yeah. or a, a, a confusing question mark. People are like a chapbook. What what is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think zine makers get that as well. Yes, but correct. they can at least go like it's like a a short magazine zine, right? Whereas I'm like. It's a chat book. It sounds like it's longer than a book because the word's longer, but that's not what it is. It's shorter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and people are like, are, is it a novella? Yeah. And it's, it's hard to explain. <laughs> you have to read it wearing chaps. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> you need to apply chapstick. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I also wanted to touch on another question that you kind of brought up earlier. So you study digital poetics, correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I'm currently a graduate student here in the English department. I'm doing um, a research-based thesis um, on digital poetics, as you said. And so that uh, can mean a lot of things um, from using a computer to generate text that you then shape into a poem or some of the things that I'm looking at are like 3D printed visual poems or augmented reality used to like animate a book. So you'd hold your cell phone over the pages of the book and you could see the poem move around and and things like that. And I'm primarily interested in, like I said, the, the 3D stuff and, and the augmented reality because I'm invested in what the object you're holding in your hand um, and the materials of what we consider to be poetry. And so there's kind of a paradox there. Um, how can something be digital but also material? And that's that's what I'm investigating. It makes me think of almost like a hologram, something that's three-dimensional but is not, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. kind of a weird thing. But I guess in a way reading is kind of like that because you might have an image in your head that's very three-dimensional. That's such... But it's on a flat page. Ugh, a wonderful analogy. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> that's going right into the thesis. Oh, no. Please. Yeah. Okay, please credit me I, well, in your yeah. thesis. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this interview. Yeah. Of course, of yeah. course. Um, I'm curious, what would a 3D printed poem look like? Like how does that work? Well, the... I've had one printed here at the library. I didn't do it myself. Um, one of the uh, one of the very helpful lab techs uh, was able to do it for me. Um, essentially, the poet who made it because it's not my poem, the poet who wrote it, uh, they wrote a text based poem, and then they converted the letters into numbers, and then they converted the numbers into three dimensional coordinates. They gave those coordinates to a three D modeling program, and they used. Um, they used a plugin to like sculpt away faces. So it looks kind of like an ice cube that has been like selectively 
melting, like a cross, almost like a cross between a cobweb and a melting ice cube. Like it's, it's like wasting away. But uh, their poem is about loss and it's about environmental collapse and the, the melting of the ice caps. And, and it's also about like degenerative muscle disease and the destruction of cultural objects um, in revolution or violent overthrows. Like it's, it touches on so many different subjects and turning it into an object that itself looks like it's wasting away um, says everything that the poem says just at a glance. That's really fascinating. I guess you could almost put it in a gallery and then have the poem on the side and say they're actually the same thing in a way, right? Yeah, they've definitely exhibited it that way. Yeah. This poem, by the way, is called Lost Sets. It's by uh, Aaron Tucker and uh, Jordan Scott, the text version. That's very, very cool. I've, I've never heard of a 3D printed poem, but I, I kind of want to see one now. <laughs> um, speaking of moving into what you mentioned earlier about kind of converting text to numbers. Hmm. Um, so with The Blasted Tree, you recently published barcode poetry, which is such a cool idea. Did you want to chat a little bit about that? Sure. So I'm... This is an interesting format to talk about a visual poem because it'd be so much easier if I could just show it to you. But essentially, it's um, a yeah, line. Yeah, go, go, go check it out online. <laughs> yeah, I, I have an Instagram account. Um, it's at barcode poetry, barcode.poetry. So almost all of them are up there by now. Uh, so you can have a look at what they are. Um, that said, for those who don't have it right in front of them, it's a 14, well, it's one line that's repeated 14 times. So each word in that sentence, in that line, makes a column. And then under that column, I have a number that indicates how many letters are in that column. And so when you step back from it a little bit, it looks like a barcode. And in order to make it even more like a barcode, I would split up words so that they'd be single letters. So you'd have these really skinny bars. And each poem has a bit of a different um, arrangement. And so the number that it produces is unique to every one of the poems. I thought it was a really cool project, and I like it because it's not just visually appealing, but it's also intellectually interesting to read. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of really good ones in here. I'm, I'm a terrible person because I always write all, all over my books and dog ear my pages. I really well, tried I, not to I with this love one. love it. I love it. I tried so hard not – whoopsie, I say as I slide away. I tried really hard not to with this one just because um, it's so visually appealing, and I didn't want to kind of like taint that, but of course I did. Um, for listeners who haven't read the work yet, it's kind of a mixture of slogans that are turned on a dime in a way, <laughs> and um, even like little jokes and stuff written in barcode, like barcode format. Um, there are some really good ones here that I flagged. Um, Piracy is the brother of invention. I thought that one was so clever, especially in the form of a barcode. And uh, Save the Rich, Eat the Poets. I thought that one was really good, too. That one's a personal favorite. I'm glad you pointed that one out. I love that one. I, I totally dog-eared it. Um, if you're interested, you can go online and check out more. They are really clever, really funny, but also really thought-provoking, which is really, really uh, cool. So I was actually curious about the barcode form in a couple ways. Um, basically, every letter is kind of tallied up at the bottom of a certain word, or certain words are breaking up, broken up. As you know, barcodes consist of lines and then numbers underneath. Um, this is typically because if you can't scan a barcode, you can always type in the number manually and then it pops up, or that's the idea anyway. I know this of years of retail service. Yeah, <laughs> painful, sure. painful, painful, painful. Um, so I know this. I was curious because a lot of these poems, basically you tally up the number of letters in a word, 
And then that's the number that comes up below. Mm -hmm. So let's say if a word, you know, has four letters, like the word free, then the number below the barcode will have four and then so on and so forth. Um, I was curious about this because I noticed some of these could actually be legitimate barcodes that you could maybe even type in or scan. Have you ever tried typing in some of your barcode poems to see what pops up? Like, <laughs> I, I have not. Um, the problem is that they're not all the same like length of numbers. Like the ISBN of a book has 13 characters, so they all get filled up all the time. But in, in this case... Um, if, it, if there's only three words, there might only be three numbers or it's like a six number sequence or an eight number sequence. Um, I, when I was writing it, that, that thought didn't actually occur to me that I, that I should be producing something that I would be able to scan. But I actually work at a bookstore. I work at Shelf Life Books. And half the staff there, as soon as they saw the, the book, they're like, oh, can you scan these? And I kind of thought to myself, <laughs> oh, damn it, I wish I, had, I wish I had made these poems in such a way that they'd be scannable. Um, and so that's why I made the only thing on the cover is the barcode. So the only the only thing on that like the identity of the book is the thing that you can actually scan, <laughs> which is really cool because that that is the title, I guess, in yeah. a way of the book. Yeah, that's yeah. the whole identity. There is just its ISBN number, its serialization in within this capitalist commodity culture we live, and its price. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what a what a an interesting way to look at your own work. No, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> I actually bought this from Shelf Life a couple of days ago, and they said the exact same thing. Like, oh, we wanted to scan it. Oh, we oh, wanted to funny. see. So I thought it was quite funny. Um, I was just curious because I thought I wonder if you could type in the barcodes that you created, and they might pop up for like an Oreo or like a dishwasher. Like, ooh, that'd be nice. No, uh, fortunately, the codes uh, mean they speak for the poems and the poems only. Um, I did keep a spreadsheet, though, and every time I wrote a new poem, I'd enter the number in, or if I edited a poem, I'd have to change the number, and I would periodically check to make sure I hadn't duplicated any numbers. And so I had, I'd been running this spreadsheet for five years before I published the thing, and um, wildly enough, it almost never came close. These numbers never duplicated because... I don't know. It's just such a robust system. Somehow uh, each one has a very unique number. That's really interesting. Um, I also thought it kind of reminded me of what they say about Charles Dickens, how he got paid by the letter or by the word. Or even like they say that the reason uh, people in the United States spell things a little bit differently is because newspapers would charge by the letter. So they just start emitting vowels and things. Um, I don't know if this popped into your head at all, but it reminded me a lot of that because you're tallying up every letter just for its yes, its currency value, I suppose. I have a, a poem in there that says, um, epic poets charge by the character. <laughs> and so on the surface level, it's like, you know, however many letters there are, I want to get paid for. But I'm also like gesturing towards like Homer in the Iliad talking about, you know, charging into battle and, and maybe uh, the like hyperviolence that ancient poets used to like you know use to <laughs> earn their bread yeah this uh work has a lot of clever play on words where there's kind of a double meaning a lot of them i read once and then i read it again and realized there's kind of a joke there well um, for me that's uh that's what makes something palatable to capitalism I, I would say that most of these poems speak to the intersection of art and money and if uh you can critique capitalism so long as the system makes some money off of it um, so I wanted to bring that paradox and contradiction um, into the heart of the book. There is a lot of contradiction in this idea as well. Um, I'm going to reference one that I thought was an example of the cleverness. You have one that says, 
theft is wrong. So we copyright, but it's like copyright, but also we copy kind of almost comma, right? Like a question. So there's kind of that double meaning there. Um, Speaking of the double meaning as well, I was curious because you mentioned that this was sort of a product of your overdetermined political ideals in the afterward. Um, And you kind of talk about the weird contradiction between critiquing this system, but also being a part of it. Did you want to expand on that? Sure. I mean, when I first started the book, uh, I was using it as a way to like vent my frustration um, with you know, being a, like a poor artist. I don't know. I'm not that poor, so I shouldn't complain. Um, <laughs> it's more of a cliche. Yeah, anyway. it's more, yeah. Just, you know, str- struggling to, to make it in, in a world that doesn't, you know, reward being an artist very well. Um, and so I had a lot of my poems that were framed negatively. The very first poem is um, bar, uh, the barcode is not a form of poetry. Barcodes are not a form of poetry. And so it's negative, right? Um, and I, was sharing them with people and some of the feedback I got was like, man, this is just so cynical. It feels very like nineties, um, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, when I was growing up and, and, and like, that's the pop culture that's deeply entrenched in my brain. Right. But people need something hopeful. Like we, I, I want, want to be more hopeful. And so I've tried to reframe things in the positive wherever I can. So the last poem is, um, the, the barcode is a form of poetry, right? I've had, like, I had stuff that was, um, this one actually got cut, so I'm, it's, it's I'm going to share it here. Uh, I had one that was Thou Shalt Not Rhyme Kanye with Kanye, because Kanye West had a song where every line ended with his own name, and I thought it was really ostentatious. And I was <laughs> like, no, thou shalt not do that. And I realized afterwards that it's way funnier to be like, thou shalt rhyme Kanye with Kanye. It's an imperative. You should You should play along. You should... And and it made me realize that like I can wear the clown nose and I can <laughs> I can disappear into the culture and it's much more effective that way than it is if I'm like standing back and poo pooing on it from a distance. Right? Like separate from culture, exactly. You recognize that you're exactly. in it, so it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, you do have one about oh, I forget what it says. It says it's something about rhymes, but I forget of them. Oh, do you want um, rhymes with that? Yes. Do you want rhymes with that? Like, do you want fries with that? I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was curious, speaking of poems that got cut and poems that didn't, uh, why did you choose to publish 101 poems? Yeah, good question. Um, Well, ones and zeros have that sort of binary flavor, and I wanted to have a link to the – like when you scan a book, it transforms from – the the ISBN number, which is a bunch of numerals, into binary. It's it's converted for its transmission as an electrical impulse, and so I I wanted to have a con- connection to digital culture um, because I was using a typewriter to make it. The other reason is uh, it's um, it's a work of ex- experimental poetry and. Uh, the format could be used over and over and over again, so I needed to give myself a starting point and an ending point. And so I started at zero, and I ended at 100, and that just ended up to be 101 poems. Um, I actually I was sending this manuscript around. I had a publisher who kind of soft-rejected it and said this would be better if it were shorter and uh, and or just more focused, you know. Um, and I'm like, no, uh uh, it needs to be 101 poems exactly, and so I'm just going to self-publish it. 
I think that was a bold move, and I appreciate that because you never know which ones they would have cut. Some right. of them might have been the really good ones that I thought were hilarious. So, <laughs> um, exactly. Everybody brings up different ones. I'm always, uh, I'm, I love to hear what people's favorites are because they're always different. And the ones that those the publisher suggested might not be the strongest. Where the very next day somebody brought up one of those poems, like this is my favorite. So, I like that. I like that it lives in different people's minds differently. When you created this, you created it with an old Remington typewriter, correct? Yes. Um, do you write often on a typewriter, or did you just choose it for this particular piece? Oh, um, at the time, I was goofing around with my typewriter a lot more than I am um, currently. Um, that being said, I, I have like three different typewriters that I use pretty much only for poetry because um, it's, you know, they're a pain for typing a letter. <laughs> yeah. Um, that said, uh, the one that I used for this project was given to me by my grandfather and then my father-in-law had it restored so that I could actually use it. And so I've had it for a long time and it's it's really special to me and it feels like it's connected to my to my personal history in a way. Um, and so... It, it was important to me to use that specific typewriter um, to to bring my own personal connection to the book. I actually thought it was interesting just because you're repeating phrases over and over again. And it, it almost reminded me of Stephen King's The Shining, where mm. he says, all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy. And he repeats it over and over and over again. Did that ever pop into your head? Did you ever feel like you're going like a little bit crazy? Absolutely. With the typewriter? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and um, moreover, like... I have to give a shout out to, um, to my wife, Marley, who I'm certain was sitting in the other room just hearing the same pattern of clickety, 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 clack, 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 clickety, 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 over and over and over again. And I'm sure it was making her crazy, too. Uh, so I understand that The Blasted Tree is also publishing another print book called Without Form by Ben Robinson. Did you want to touch on that briefly as well? Absolutely. Um, well, first, I should uh, tell you the project Without Form is... Um, glorious. I'm so proud to be involved with this this thing. Um, ben Ben Robinson is a poet based in Ontario, and he did an erasure of the entire Bible. He took out all the words and left only the verse and chapter notations. So it's just these like constellations of floating numbers against a white page. It's really extremely beautiful, and it's huge. It's like the whole Bible, right? And so. A few years ago, he sent me this project, and I knew that I couldn't turn it away. Like I, It was way beyond what I had ever taken on before. Um, and so we decided to publish it as a chapbook first, and we did each of the 66 books of the Bible separately as their own chapbook. And I, I'm very proud of that. It, uh, it, some of the chapbooks are like one page long, and some are like 50 pages long. So I had to learn new ways of making a chapbook in order to pull it off. But... When we were done, we kind of looked at each other across the digital divide and we're like, hmm, this is just not quite it. We have to make this into a book. And a real Bible, a like real... A, a, Bible, a Bible thumping Bible. Like. Exactly. It has to, to be the whole thing together. And so I approached him with this scheme to do like a the biggest most beautiful hardcover book that we could afford to produce. Um, and I wanted it to have that sort of family Bible feel to it. Um, and like you could swear on it in court or something. Exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, the nice thing with this project is you could fill in whatever words you wanted to swear on to. <laughs> um, so anyways, uh, we, we 
priced it out, we realized we could probably only afford to make six to ten of these things. Um, and we were like, this is great. Let's do it. Uh, as we're getting the ball rolling, I was approached by a good friend um, who's a publisher and bookseller in Toronto, Kirby, who runs Knife Fork Book, a poetry-only bookstore that's um, if you're ever in Toronto, you absolutely should check out. Uh, anyways, Kirby said this project is absolutely worth doing right, and so let's let's do 32 copies um, or 36 actually. So we we pooled our money and we went ahead with it. Uh, actually, I should say that we did um, uh, pre-orders, and so pre-orders covered the bulk of of the production costs. Um, and we sold through the, the 36 really quickly. And so we expanded it to 50. So we've made 50 of these massive 766 page hardcovers that are like linen wrapped with foil stamped spines and beautiful dust jackets. (laughs) And like, I, I honestly, it's way easier for me to like gush over Ben's work just because it's, it blows me away every time I touch it. I feel honored every time I get to hold it. And there's always something cool. I guess this must be the fun part about having your own kind of art collective and publication company that you work with and for and are editor-in-chief of is that you do get actually more of a choice in the, the physicality of the book, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big part of it for me. Um, we looked – well, I, I guess I looked at all the different options for how do you print a hardcover book. And we didn't go with like the most expensive local printer. I went with, um, I went with a printer in the States. Um, but they offered – you know, tons of different choices. I had been thinking about these things with chat books and, and leaf, leaflets um, for years now. And these choices make a make a big difference in, in what the outcome is, right? So yeah, we took our time and, and we tried to pick the pick the right options for us and for the project. The thing that I should say is that I'm I think that uh, innovative and and worthy um, writing, experimental writing, um, comes from across all sorts of different communities. So the conceptual writing and experimental writing oftentimes feel very heady or feel exclusive and has in a way become an ivory tower kind of, uh, pursuit. Uh, and I don't get down with that at all. Um, I think that great, great material comes from every walk of life. And, uh, if, if you agree, I would love to see your work. CJSW. No adverbs allowed. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Hello, this is Crystal Smith. I'm a poet and a PhD student at the University of Calgary. And I'm here with my friend, Mariam Gorali, and we're going to have a craft talk today. So Mariam Gorali is currently the creative nonfiction editor for Filling Station magazine, and is pursuing an MA in English Literature at the University of Calgary. She draws inspiration from her Caribbean, Indian, and Indonesian heritage. Her works to be found at Prism International, The Selkie, The Thames Review, The Caribbean Writer, and other journals. Her debut poetry collection, Citizenship in Water, is forthcoming with that painted horse press in 2021. So thank you so much for joining me today to have this little craft talk. I've been really thinking a lot about craft lately. And as I was talking about with to Melissa last time, is that craft is this very subjective thing. And it's almost like the word deconstruction, I find, where it, it means so many different things in so many different contexts. And I'm really interested to learn what craft means to different writers, especially writers um, who come 
to who come to poetry and creative nonfiction from a different uh, vantage point than you know what's kind of been considered quote conventional I guess you could say so I, I really want to know what what does craft mean to you um well it's kind of funny because I find I've always found the word craft itself um to be quite intimidating and I think I think when you belong to the writing community or you're an emerging writer and you're just starting to dip your toes into the water the way people talk about craft can be quite um imposing in a lot of ways and I think there's um I think a lot of people need to consider as well like that idea or the concept of how um we privilege certain ways in which people achieve craft so whether that is through going through like poetry workshops or courses and there's um this interesting like compartmentalization that starts to take place between people who have access to studying poetry in a more in-depth level versus, you know, that whole like, like paintbrush stroke where everyone can be a poet. So I think it's somewhere in between, but I've always struggled with that in terms of um, craft. Is it a, a way to write poetry through a formal learning scope or is craft something that's inherently in the person? Um, so what craft means to me, I think is in a lot of ways, just takes up the role of creating, um, strong, if not at times dissenting poetic voices and aesthetics. And I think there's a way in which we talk about, um, poetry as a type of meta conversation between what the writer is seeing or experiencing in the world. So I think craft is being able to, to adequately write that conversation and represent how people change or represent an experience or represent an identity. And I think there's just a strong collaboration between the author and the medium that they decide to choose. Cause obviously there's like certain ideas of like, oh this is a sestina or a guzzle and like there's all those kind of formal aspects that sometimes people label as craft because sometimes the conversation around craft is like we're in a a workshop environment and we're going to use like technical terms and like writerly jargon you can come to craft like through personal experience or even a particular way of viewing or being in the world right am i understanding correctly yeah, for sure. And like, obviously, there's an importance in learning the formal ways in which to learn genre. Um, but there's a lot of gatekeeping I've found that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And so I think craft is being able to, you know, again, have that meta conversation between yourself and whatever you're deciding to write. And so there's that um I guess, triangulation that takes place between um, the author versus the subject, whether if you're, for example, doing ekphrasis poetry, so like the art piece, and then the audience itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a lot of it is about 
the social relationship um, um, beyond this like conventional conventional like suturing of forms. Um, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you implement like fear or ambivalence or for example, um, a lot of emotional language that I'm talking about here? Because there isn't some kind of quick adage that you can say like, oh, don't use too many adverbs when you're dealing with that very difficult thing of taking an abstraction like an emotion or something even that is beyond words and then trying to put it to words like through the form of a poem or creative nonfiction piece, right? I'm curious to know, and I I want to be clear too in, in formulating this question, when I say craft tools, I don't mean you know, the avoid the adverbs thing, Um, but more of the things that you were talking about, I'm interested to know what craft tools have you learned over the years that you've been writing? Um, I guess very much so that what has helped me a lot in terms of poetry is actually recognizing that we can look at physical things in the world and derive social meaning from them. So obviously, um, ekphrastic poetry has been around for so long and um, because I have such a keen interest on family history, history in general, um, you know, colonization, environmentalism, there's so much of the physical world that we have to interrogate while also in, like uh, utilizing and experimenting with that social lens. So I think when I first was starting to write um, ekphrastic poetry was uh, was of huge importance to me with regarding like the importance of of um, that interconnection between whether it's oral storytelling or the written word or the physical world and the emotional or spiritual world that we live in um, Because I think also with the convention of ekphrastic poetry, there's also within that genre a lot of conversations or a lot of work to be done in reversing a lot of the historical contentions with it. For example, again, talking about like triangulation, where you have um, that idea where you have the poet that stands and looks at the object, whether it's an art piece or a sculpture and the sculpture or the landscape, for example, and the landscape or that object is ten, tends to be quite passive and is often gendered female. And then you have the listening subject who is the audience, who's made to see what you're describing or what you're trying to showcase. So I think there's a bit of like ableism that comes with the traditional conventions and like also like sexism that comes through that so I think recognizing that and coming to terms with okay I'm looking at this painting but now I want to um, express a new emotional response where the art object isn't silent it isn't passive you know how do those responses look like and I think that is what I find very interesting about writing from that point of view in terms of like a really important craft tool is I think to look at the world um, and then also see like the conventions that kind of need to be disrupted.
Right. So it's almost like cult, like a, a useful craft tool is cultivating levels of awareness and enough distance between that subject object or like viewer viewed relationship to stand back from it and take a look at what's happening there and express it in a different way. Yeah, I think because I guess historically, when you look at um, even the way people engage with one another, I think there is like, whether it's through colonization or what have you, um, this way of demarcating against one another and otherizing in a way that is adversarial. Um, um, not that it, it doesn't, that, that we have to take that away because it can be quite important. But also, I think it's about realizing that we're all interrelated, we're all connected. Um, so therefore, I have a responsibility towards something. And I think writing about connection is quite important. And there's always like, um, at least with the type of writing that I do, whether it's environmentalism or with glo uh, globalism, there's always something to be had or said about like, the social obligations we have towards peoples and more than human things. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that idea. And especially the way you articulated it. I'm very interested in um, lyric relationships between things. And instead of constantly breaking things into categories or binaries, lyric patterns between things allows for resonance and movement. And never exists in one state or another, you know, is never solid versus liquid, but is constantly like cycling. Yeah. So I love that idea of focusing on relationships um, in writing. So we're coming to the end of our, our little craft talk here. And um, I, I just want to finish up with the question, do you have any advice for me as a writer or for anyone else who might be listening about craft or even about the way um, to approach writing? Um, I think maybe because I'm so invested in the idea of social relations right now and in this interview that I guess I'll, I'll posit this for people that have an interest in writing about like deeper topics, so to speak. I can definitely write like playful um, poetry as well, but um, I think there's something to be said about history when throughout time and um, different geographical locations, whether it's indigenous history or African history or what have you, where poets have always been, um, have always been the history and have always been um, history teachers. So I think um, I tell people in terms of honing your craft, look at what inspires you and look at what like whether it's politically or historically and or looking towards the present something that you have an anxiety about and I think that's like um, the greatest way to continue that tradition of poets as historians um, which is that documenting of history or the present and so take take a historical document or take a current document and like try to make a poem out of it. I think that's also another interesting way in which we can hone our craft. Um, again, just talking, again, I'm saying 
make sure it's something that you have a lot of passion about and have a lot of um, interest in because that reflects you as the historian. CJSW, no adverbs allowed. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. If you ask a local Calgarian where to find a good used book, chances are they'll suggest one of Calgary's most well-known and loved bookstores, Fair's Fair Books. In fact, one of their biggest claims to fame stems from a loyal customer doing just that, to an African king. The owner of Fair's Fair Bookstore, George Henderson, told the story to Nathan Coons of the Calgary Journal when asked who his most memorable customer was. It turns out that a community chief from Ghana had come to Calgary for the opening of the Calgary Zoo's Destination Africa exhibit in 2012. The customer, dressed that day in a traditional colorful garment, had accompanied the chief and wanted to bring him to one of his favorite spots in Calgary. A not-so-secret hidden gem, Fair's Fair Books. The chief said he was looking for Sidney Sheldon Books, a crime and thriller author who had also written for Broadway. George gifted a collection of Sheldon books to the chief, as Coons puts it, in exchange for the great story. The first store location opened near the current Inglewood store in a basement underneath what is now the Swans Pub. In October of 1988, six of the Henderson family members prepared for opening day by stocking the bookcases that arrived only three days before. They stocked the bookshelves with 7,000 books that George had picked up from garage sales in the months leading up to the opening. Today, the Inglewood location is still in a basement, just a little further west on 9th Avenue. The old building complements the indie bookstore vibe perfectly. It sits next to the CP rail tracks, and every time a train goes by, the whole building shakes and loud bells and whistles can be heard for up to 10 minutes as the train passes through. It fosters an authentic underground environment that is part of the store's appeal to its diverse clientele. I have visited many times in search of specific books or to be surprised by a new unexpected favorite. This week, I'm taking a look at one of these curious finds, a book full of my favorite DIY art projects. Microwave Pressed Flowers by Joanna Sheen is full of project ideas that are perfect for these beautiful fall blooms. She explains in the introduction how pressed flowers have fascinated people for over a hundred years, but that the invention of the microwave revolutionized the popular hobby because it sped up the drying process. Microwaves have also allowed for even more species of flowers to be pressed that used to not preserve well with the old methods. Orchids, for example, can now be pressed and still maintain all of their vibrant colors. In England, Queen Victoria popularized the art form, and Victorian women were known to collect flowers as they wandered through country lanes to take them home and press. The author says that Victorians were incurably romantic, and many suitors would press a flower between the book pages of a family Bible to then present to a young lady. If you'd like to try your hand at a traditional flower press method, just use the heaviest book you can find, think telephone book size, and place your flower in between the pages. You'll want to make sure that you place your flower at the center of the book so it gets enough pressure, 
and remember that the lighter and flimsier the flour, the better it will work with the book press method. But as Sheen demonstrates, dried flowers don't have to be only confined to the inside of a book. Let's look at some creative ideas to get you started. There is no limit to the amount of flowers that you can press, but some flowers do turn out better than others. For best results, use flowers that are in full bloom. You can tell if a flower is in its prime by looking at its center. The brighter and tighter it is, the newer the flower. Flowers that are already dead or wilting won't keep their shape or color with pressing. After you've chosen your flowers, you will need a microwave and a microwave flower press. Making your own DIY flower press is easy and only requires two to three materials depending on your chosen method. You can visit HGTV or Better Home and Gardens for detailed instructions on how to build your own. Once you've mastered the art of flower pressing, Sheen shows how you can use your newly pressed flowers to decorate everything from rocking chairs to photograph frames. If you liked this segment, be sure to tune in next month as I go in search of a new old book. CJSW. No adverbs allowed. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Gabriel Garcia Marquez was a Colombian novelist, short story writer, screenwriter, and journalist, and is considered one of the most significant and influential authors of the 20th century. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in Literature in 1982. CJSW Writer's Block volunteer Vincent Young will be reviewing the Garcia Marquez short story, A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings, about its literary and social influence. Very Old Man with Enormous Swings by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Gabo, as he is affectionately called, is Colombian 1982 Nobel Prize writer, famous for his novel 100 Years of Solitude. His parents were poor, so his maternal grandparents raised him and claimed that he drew much of his literary inspiration from his grandmother's storytelling. A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings is part of his first published collection of short stories, Leaf Storm, in 1955. Garcia Marquez's own development of magical realist genre has had enormous influence on writers in Central and South America, becoming one of the signature fictional genres of Latin American writers, including Argentina's Jorge Luis Borges, Chile's Isabel Allende, and Peru's Mario Vargas Llosa. Gabo is also a great mediator of disputes between the government, leftist guerrillas, right-wing paramilitaries, and the drug cartels during Colombia's decades-long civil war. Friends with both Cuban leader Fidel Castro and former US President Bill Clinton, Gabo breached the gap between the two countries in the 90s which strengthened his reputation as a peacemaker. Many have hailed him as Colombia's only voice of reason and the country's best hope for peace. 
very old man with enormous wings is a story about a husband and wife named Pelayo and Alexander who live near the ocean and are proud parents to a newborn sick child. After a bad storm, Pelayo discovers a homeless, disorientated old man in his courtyard who happens to have a very large wings. The old man is filthy and senile and speaks an unintelligible language. Pelayo and his wife, Alexander, believes that the old man is an angel who had tried to come and take their sick child to heaven. The neighbor tells Pelayo that he should club the angel to death, but Pelayo and Alexander take pity on their visitor, especially after their child recovers and keep him in the chicken coop. The angel soon begins to attract crowds of curious visitors. Father Gonzaga, the local priest, tells the people that the old man is probably not an angel because he's shabby and does not speak Latin. Father Gonzaga decides to ask his bishop for guidance. Despite Father Gonzaga's efforts, word of the old man's existence soon spreads and the pilgrims from all over come to seek advice and healing from the angel. The crowd eventually grows so large and disorderly with the sick and the curious that Elizenda begins to charge admission. For the most part, the old man ignores the people, even when they pluck his feathers and throw stones at him to make him stand up. He becomes enraged, however, when the visitors sear him with a branding iron to see whether he's still alive. To capitalize on the popularity of the old man with wings, a woman spider arrives and impresses the crowd, which results in competition for the old man with wings for audience. The spider woman, a woman who has been transformed into a giant tarantula with the head of a woman after she disobeyed her parents. The sad tale of the spider woman is so popular that the people quickly forget the old man who performed only a few pointless semi-miracles for his pilgrims. Malayo and Alessandra have nevertheless grown quite wealthy from the admission fees Alessandra had charged. Malayo quits his job and builds a new larger house. The old man continues to stay with them, still in chicken coop for several years as the little boy grows older. When the chicken coop eventually collapsed, the old man moves into adjacent shed, but he often wanders from room to room inside the house, much to Alexander's annoyance. The old man with wings begins to get sick and loses his wings. Just when Pelayo and Alexander are convinced that the old man will soon die, he begins to regain his strength and his feathers grow back. One day, the old man stretches his wings and takes off into the air, and Alexander watches him disappear over the horizon. Marquez uses both natural and divine imagery in his description of places, characters and events in this short story. The possibly angelic nature of the old man is neither confirmed nor denied, allowing readers to interpret the story in different ways. Marquez instantly presents the reader 
with a drab town in which the inhabitants led mundane lives without much aim or ambition. There is a strong sense of sickness and decay, with the appearance of the winged old man suddenly there is an event that might shake the town out of its stupor. Marquez places the miraculous right in the middle of the mundane, giving the sense that miracles might not be wholly extraordinary. People wouldn't recognize a miracle even if they saw one. Appearances are disappearing. This angel is not bright white with beautiful skin and glorious clothing, but a weak the old man. Marquez, through the story, shows how cruel and imperfect society can be. In the beginning of the story, the weather in Makondo, the town where the story takes place, is used as a symbol of corruption. In Makondo, it's always dark and rainy, interpreting how the villagers themselves are also dark and corrupt. An early description of the setting in the story illustrates how in Makondo it is used to be sunny all the time, but it had become a stew of mud and rotten shellfish. What then is the moral of Marquez's short story? Patience pays off. One crucial and accurate description of the very old man with wings. His only supernatural virtue seems to be patience. Certainly, his wings and the ability to fly differentiate the strange visitor from ordinary men. But so too, his extraordinary patience and acceptance of suffering. I visualize the man as an example of good that is surrounded by evil, but remains steadfast and unyielding. He could have become outraged, violent or demanding while held captive. If he was an angel, he could have retaliated, but he did not. He did not allow the evil around him to change him. Good things happen when the old man with wings is around. The rain ends, the child's health improves, Pelayo and Alexander prosper. There is light at the end of the dark tunnel. No suffering is in vain. There is hope. Wings are symbols of freedom, power and divinity in this short story by Marquez. When the old man flies, he is both literally and symbolically freeing himself from his years of sideshow attraction. This is an excellent example of magic realism technique when an author places a fantastical element such as an old man with wings and the spider woman within a realistic setting. The genre that mingles fantasy and the ordinary so effectively that it blurs the line between reality and the absurd. The tale provokes discussions about exploitation suffering, deliverance, religion, and most importantly, the search for him. Personally, it is a story of hope in the midst of adversary and times of darkness. A story for all time, a magical
This is Riders Block from CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from Calgary.